0: Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of August 28th, so it's really last week in private markets. And this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start with the big deals of the week. The battery recycling company Redwood Materials, which was co-founded by the longtime Tesla CEO, raised $1 billion. Similarly, the company Peregrine Energy raised $700 million for battery solar and wind projects. Matrix Partners China raised 1.6 billion for this year's largest China-focused fund, and the Indian billionaire Mukesh Ambani's Reliance Retail Ventures is in talks to raise $2.5 billion of a targeted $3.5 billion in September, with $1 billion of that coming from the Qatar Investment Authority. Now, let's move on to the big uh, stories of the week, starting with fallout from the SEC's nuclear, uh, new private fund rules. Jeff, I I know you've
1: been waiting to comment some more on this, so we got to start with you yeah, I mean, as expected, the uh, some organizations have sued the SEC, um, some industry organizations, et cetera. And they basically are claiming that the SEC has overstepped their uh, authority under the various acts um, that Congress has passed um to actually regulate this industry. So, I mean, my take on this, and I'd be interested to hear if there's any differing opinions here, is that the the folks who are, suing the SEC are actually just fighting a pre-battle for more regulation to come. Because I don't really view anything in this particular rule as being dramatically harmful to the industry in a way that you should really go crazy over. But the way that they're approaching this, in my opinion, is that they're like, look, if we let the SEC... Do something like this to us, then they're going to be able to regulate us on a bunch uh, of other things that maybe will be more harmful to us. And we'd like to have that power be with Congress rather than with the SEC, who can make more unilateral decisions. Um, because I don't really see anything in here that is that crazy harmful to the industry, and I don't see I don't really see anything in here that is overstepping the bounds. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on this. But I don't really see things in here that are overstepping the bounds of what they would be able to do under the 40 Act and that type of thing. So,
2: yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm wondering if this in the, at the end of the day sort of ends up backfiring, um, if the strategy doesn't really make too much sense, to be honest, because, you know, I mean, the, the way like administrative agencies are supposed to work is right. They interpret uh, an act of Congress that's been passed signed by the president, and then they're supposed to promulgate rules, right, based on that. So um, the commissioner here, Gensler, is, you know, very clearly relying on the Dodd-Frank Act from 2010, um, you know, to prohibit or restrict certain, you know, sales practices and, you know, things that might lead to conflicts of interest and, you know, sort of perverse compensation incentives. Um, So, you know, you you can interpret that sort of more or less broadly. Obviously, the the Dodd-Frank Act um, you know, pretty closely, I think, cover some of the rules that the SEC has promulgated as a part of this, right? So, um, you know, they can certainly go ahead and sue. You know, I think the standard here is whether, you know, the the actual agency's ruling is, you know, uh, arbitrary and capricious. Um, I think it might be hard, in fact, to argue that here. So, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering if they effectively, you know, end up receiving a number of losing verdicts um, that the SEC did not in fact behave in an arbitrary and capricious way. Does that actually just make it sort of harder than to challenge,
1: um, you know, future regulation once precedent has been set? Uh, Right. You're you're picking the wrong place to fight your battles. You got to pick to fight where to fight your battles here because you're fighting a losing battle in this one, perhaps because it's really not overstepping your bounds. I mean, like, look at it. If you all commented on the initial proposed ruling and all the same people who are suing probably left comments and the comments weren't like, you don't have the authority to do this. The comments were like, Hey, could you, could you back up on the, on the rule about the fund advisors, this, this rule and that rule. And then the SEC gave in on all those things too. I mean, it, 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 since this rule is not really that overbearing, like you said, maybe it backfires and now the SEC gets a blank check to do whatever they want to do in the future. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems
2: like they're trying to put a box around the SEC. Um, you know, their concern should be, though, does this box in fact, you know, is it restrictive enough at, at the end of the day? Um, you know, if, if, if these cases set precedent that in fact the SEC can do X,Y,Z, well, then, then it's a very, very big box around what the SEC could do, and then frankly, they can act much more freely, citing, who knows how many cases, maybe even Supreme Court precedent. Um, in the next round of litigation, you know, following their next round.
1: Yeah, but I I seem to remember I seem to remember you predicting a couple weeks ago that uh, this would go to the Supreme Court and uh, would perhaps get struck down uh, by the Supreme Court. Are you are we are we turning around on that
2: now? Look, I don't I don't know. Right. The Supreme Court is a it's a political animal uh, at this point. So who knows, right? I mean, restricting administrative agency power in some context is, you know, popular among a right wing court and in some context is very unpopular in a right wing court, right? So right. I, I think we'll, we'll sort of have to see how this plays out. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to tell. Um, it, it's just it's hard to tell at this point.
0: All right. Let's move on to another battle with the SEC, uh, this time with Grayscale, and they have recently won. At least the first step of their court battle with the SEC, Um, a federal appeals court ruled that the SEC must review Grayscale's application to convert its Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Uh, Grayscale applied to do this a few years ago, but the SEC denied it because the company failed to show evidence that it um, could adequately protect investors against market manipulation and other wrongdoings like that. Um, there's a number of other firms like BlackRock, Fidelity that have sort of floated similar ideas of creating Bitcoin ETFs. So, uh, guys, is this the uh, the missing link to replace the dollar with Bitcoin? What, what do we think?
2: Well, that the, I don't know. The answer to that is <laughs> outside of my my purview. But I can't. But I can say that I mean this is you know a very very similar issue to to the one we just discussed with respect to the private funds regulation. Um, you know, the D.C. Circuit has actually here said um, the SEC, you know, acted in an arbitrary and capricious way, and and frankly could not make an argument um, as to why you know Grayscale's you know application was was denied and why it was not. Uh, materially similar, I think, was their language to you know futures-based yeah. funds um, that they've approved previously, right? So, I, I actually, you know, I I think I tend to agree with this ruling. It's it's much more, um, at least with, with respect to how ad administrative law is supposed to work, and arbitrary, capricious as a standard is supposed to work. This is just much much clearer. You know, I think the SEC really did not meet its bound its burden of proof here. Um you know, vis-a-vis futures based funds. um, so you know whether whether you think this is good or bad for for society or whether you know fiat currency is on its way out, um you know, above my pay grade, uh, but this is a much clearer sort of legal um you know argument I- I in my opinion than than perhaps um you know the private funds rules we just discussed
1: at the same time, will this actually you know make a difference because this basically just says well, it has to go back to the SEC and then. Uh, they have to review it again, and maybe they have to come up with another justification, to turn it down. or maybe this is the time that it actually works. I mean, you know, everyone was talking about in June, BlackRock filed for a spot etf um Bitcoin etF. Um, and everyone was talking about how BlackRock has an amazing track record with getting ETFs approved. They don't go into this stuff, you know, and not do that. And I think Larry Fink was on. TV talking about how Bitcoin is the future of this or that and it's the future of gold or whatever it is and so you know maybe the tides are turning for a Bitcoin ETF. I personally am in favor of it. I think that it is it's definitely an asset class with staying value. I think there might be a slippery slope argument on this which is the, the bigger concern which is that you know if you can put Bitcoin into an ETF similar similar argument why can't you put any other cryptocurrency into an ETF and that's where it starts to get that you could have a thousand ETFs blooming that are all crazy cryptocurrency that no one would trust to be in there. And once again, you know, you'd have a similar type of ruling that says, well, what's the difference between this one or that one? So um I can see why they want to kind of hold it at bay. To me, Bitcoin has definitely met the standard of like folks should be able to get into this. It is, you know, kind of an asset class uh similar to gold. Um And I've seen family offices uh, before that have had that have managed portfolios of these crypto assets. And it is really not not an ideal situation right now, even with, you know, Coinbase institutional platform to do this and to be able to integrate this in as an ETF uh, really would allow more folks to get exposure to to this unique asset. Um, So I'm definitely in favor of it. I think it's I think it is time. But I also think that they shouldn't roll it out in a way that it ends up having to roll out to every uh cryptocurrency in the world that isn't ready for prime time and could lead to a lot of fraud and issues. So what
0: what makes a Bitcoin ETF different from a Dogecoin ETF?
1: It That's sounds exactly like a joke question. <laughs> it's a serious question. That's exactly what I'm saying. There there there, there is no <laughs> difference that you could really point to on paper. Now obviously in practice there's a huge difference. I mean the 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 difference is that Bitcoin is accepted as as the 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 standard, right? Um and that Dogecoin is not. Now, it obviously could flip at some point, but um, there's no reason why you'd be able to make a distinction between those two at a regulatory level, which means you might have to approve both, and you might have to approve a variety of other even more shady, crazier ones um, that obviously is not a good idea to approve. So I, I agree, and I think that we should you know, hold at bay. At the same time, I think getting access... Allowing institutional investors to have easy access to uh, Bitcoin, which I do think is a legitimate asset, I think it's the one cryptocurrency that is a legitimate asset. I think it's important. Uh, one other thing I want to note here is that I, I always love checking this stuff. So you know, this got approved uh, or this got you know uh, overturned. They have to re look at this at the SEC. They have to re look at this Bitcoin ETF. Well, there's a there's a prediction markets for these things now. And um, there's a there's a there's a site called Manifold Markets that allows you to do predictions, and they have uh, one market around. Uh, in a, is there going to be a spot Bitcoin ETF approved by September 30th of this year? And right now, that's sitting at nine percent probability of approval. And then they have another one that is: Is there going to be a spot Bitcoin ETF approved by uh, December 31st of this year? And that's at 31 percent chance of approval. So obviously, there's some time dependency, here, of course. But you know, even if you even if you do give it the there's a 45 day period that the SEC has to review this thing. And even, you know, within that period that the market, the probability markets here are not saying that this uh is going to be a, a thing, at least within the SEC's current review period that they have on this ETF.
2: At, at least Bloomberg would would beg to differ. I think their their ETF analysts are saying. That there's actually a 75% chance the SEC approves uh, the Bitcoin spot ETF. Well,
1: this is a great example. What so is this, oh, this is their ETF? Is this Eric Balhunas
2: or um just uh, one of their I don't know. This is okay. their quote unquote ETF analyst. Got uh, it with a very different position and
1: and giving it a 95% odds of approval by the end of next year. So well, he should be he should be making some bets here. You know, I always I always tend to agree with the market over the pundit, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'll be excited to see how it plays out. You know, place your bets, everybody.
0: Excellent. Let's move on. KKR expands its focus on climate investing. Basically, they've hired a few new senior people, and they are promising a new uh, climate investing strategy with a different risk-return profile. Um, so, something fresh, something green. That's what they're promising. And uh, if I've understood this correctly, basically, aside from fostering green energy projects, the idea is to um, achieve superior returns by investing in companies that are not quite startups, but also not quite mature. So-
1: Yeah, I think it's stage. not it's not infrastructure and it's not venture. It's more to me like a growthy yeah, Yeah, exactly. Strategy. Growth-y. And they're like, they see that there's a, a hole in the market here where there's a lot of great things that you can do, where you can make things a little bit more efficient. You can work on things, battery systems and you know, uh, electric transportation and, you know, other things, uh, that are sort of new, but not a completely revolutionary thing. And also, but not, not old enough that they're just an infrastructure project, like a solar farm or something like that, which is a really right asset class at this point. Yeah. I
2: mean, I, it seems like the, what they're honing in on is, I mean, obviously as, aside from AI, um, you know, whatever that means, which, you know, I think we'll get into later. <laughs> in this recording, you know, climate tech, you know, for lack of a better phrase, is sort of the other very, you know, big hotspot within venture. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I think it would make sense that, you know, that probably spills over into, you know, growth investing or, you know, more traditional private equity investing like like KKR is known for. Um, but I think separately, I think you're right, Jeff. I mean, I think they they sort of understand that, you know, generally the space is a bit starved for capital. Um, you don't need to go and make you know a, a bet on on a novel technology or on the revival of, of, of an old technology um to really make in- incremental improvements to things like you know energy management infrastructure um you know even sustainability services and and related software um, a lot of it is just a question of um you know providing growth capital you know to, to proven you know businesses already um so i you know i think we'll probably see more more of this strategy um and, and you know, we'll see this I think we'll see a lot of follow on from, you know, KKR's quote unquote rivals at other large, you know, traditional private equity funds
1: um, who will also be, you know, focusing on this area going forward as well. You know, capital fills in all cracks here. So we've got enough capital in the space that everyone's specializing and they're pitching their own little tiny brand of of this or that thing. Right. So um, everyone is specializing and in, in trying to you know, get in and, and make sure that that we're investing in all the right places, which is what you expect when there's a lot of investment opportunity to something.
2: Yeah, and, it's, and it's good for the brand. I mean, this is certainly good for the KKR brand and, um, you know, perhaps opens them up to, you know, more uh, allocations from institutional investors who, you know, might have, uh, you know, their own internal ESG requirements and things like that, uh, that they might want to focus on. Right. Yeah.
1: On I mean, I, I think KKR has committed about $40 billion dollars to sustainability yeah. investments and stuff over the past decade or so, and uh, you know, interestingly, the SEC's one of their main goals has been in on the regulatory agenda. Uh, agenda has been around uh, climate change, right? Because it is in, in the end a somewhat political beast, um, and yeah, so it does definitely curry favor in, in the right places to to continue to, to up in investment in this space. But but also, yeah, there's there's just a big trend of folks of folks investing in this space generally.
0: All right, we move on. Let's dive into a report from PitchBook about performance persistence in private markets. Basically, they looked at whether a general partner's previous private funds um, can predict future fund performance. And well, long story short, they found it is predictive to some degree, but only sometimes and
1: with at least eight years of hindsight. Let's discuss (laughs) A lot of caveats on that. So yeah, for sure. they did it. They they kind of had had referenced. There were a few studies that found that there were uh, you know correlations between private equity funds um, that had top qual- top quartile returns. Um, you know, fund one, fund two, fund three. There were correlations. Now that was in prior things, 2005 studies, etc. They did an updated study here at PitchBook. Um, they included about three thousand funds. Obviously, the asset class has grown tremendously. There's been you know um you know multiples of growth. so there's a lot more funds, a lot more data. and we have better data on when things were available. And I think the the, the crazy thing that they found was that there is really not correlation between uh the different vintages and and that's interesting because I was actually on the 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 kind of call where they went over this research report and they had a poll where they asked folks who are in this space, allocators, GPs, et cetera, do you think that there's correlation between uh, you know, funds in, in the same family across vintages? And it, it, it was something like you know, 70% said some version of yes, yes, but this, yes, but that. And they were like, oh, well, this is going to be an interesting conversation then, because uh, there was only 2% or something that said like, no, I think there's no correlation at all and these guys who did this report, I think they were really stretching. And they were actually on the side of there's basically no correlation. They found that there was correlation between if you had the eight-year, these eight-year returns, which typically when you're raising fund two, you're not eight years into the fund. You're three and a half years into the fund. Yeah. And so they, when you have those three and a half-year returns, those, those three and a half-year returns actually are not that correlated with the eight-year returns. They end up changing the IRRs, end up changing by about an average of 13 percentage points. So, crazy. <laughs> not correlated at all, right? Um, so, they end up changing a lot, right? And uh, if you were investing based off of those three and a half year returns, you basically have n- no ability to predict. They found that in real estate and in venture capital, you had uh, a little bit more pers- performance persistence over time, uh, which kind of makes sense, especially in venture, as far as I know it, that there's actually just certain brands that are persistent over time that you, should, you actually just can't get access to. So, it's not really about analyzing the track records. Um, but then in private equity it was just flat. And if you look at some of the dot plot, like the charts where they're doing these correlations, you can just eyeball it and you can see the the R squareds on this. The correlations are quite low. It's pretty much just a random smattering. And I think this obviously has really huge implications for how allocators should look at it. And it's it's the type of research that you know really led to the the, the prevalence of index funds um, in in public markets right? Just finding that there's really not, that there's not much skill in this or that all the skill gets competed away with fees. um, And that there was this performance persistence in this 2005 study. And then all the new studies, they cited a few, find that there's no persistence of of performance. And um, it's the similar type of studies that really led to a revolution in public markets investing with uh, index funds, which are passive investing and really take advantage of the fact that uh, it doesn't really matter where you put your money you want to get broad exposure to to asset classes in general so um yeah it was a really interesting study very ca- counterintuitive and counter to the narrative that i think a lot of people have in their minds right now
2: what does this mean jeff for you know how people will think about i mean who, who knows if this actually ends up changing any behavior unless there's you know more and more research i think um, yeah. that sort of provides more of an overwhelming viewpoint that this is in fact the case but Um, I mean, I would think this is great for our friends at, you know, funds of funds managers um, or at some of these, you know, private equity, you know, almost index funds um, where you can invest across, you know, the top 50 or top 100, you know, buyout funds, credit funds, etc. You know, this is really great press for them. You know, I wonder if they'll see more if they'll frankly just become more popular, um,
1: you know, as this research, you know, perhaps proliferates. I mean, so that's one outcome. So one is there there were definitely several other studies that they said inspired them to re- sort of redo this themselves that also found that performance insist- uh, persistence had eroded over time. I do think that fund to funds, obviously it makes a lot of sense. I will say, surprisingly, they they also found no persistence in fund to fund returns. Um, as you can imagine, <laughs> you know, they're they're more they're more diversified in the first place. Um, one thing I will say that is similar to public markets that you should find out of this is that, of course, the one that while you can't change the the slope on the the perform, the axis, you can change the intercept, meaning the fees. And uh, you might find more push on getting lower fees. Well, if everyone is the same, then it is commodity. Then maybe the thing you should really care about in the end, what really ends up making the difference for you, is getting lower fees on your investment. Which is of course what happened in public markets when everyone decided that active investment wasn't the most important thing. They they lowered it. The other thing I will say is that this obviously focused on funds that were fund families that had a lot of track record and history. I fully think that probably this type of uh, efficiency, market efficiency, has not reached into the emerging manager asset class, into the small funds asset class. And so just like you would have in public markets investing, you should have folks who even who work at pension funds, who work these large places, who say, yeah, look, we've known for for years now that... It doesn't not really mattering whether or not you're investing in Blackstone or Apollo, right? But when you start to go out on the fringes and you can have a diligence process that can underwrite you into a lot of smaller names and you can be really smart about those names and know how you're going to work with those those guys, then you can actually, you know, outperform the market. So I think that, you know, they did focus on three thousand funds here. We all know that there's about sixty thousand funds in the universe. And so there's a lot of other funds here that that were probably not included in the study that probably still have this sort of inefficiency that leads to performance persistence.
0: Excellent. All right. For our next story, the Swiss asset manager, Vontobel, is partnering. I don't know if I pronounced that in a Swiss way. I don't think I did. They're partnering <laughs> with portfolio advisors to begin offering private market investment products for wealth management clients starting in September of this year. And
2: apparently the offering is centered around a multi-strategy fund. It was much too melodious, Thomas, I think your (laughs) pronunciation, maybe if it was, you know, Swiss Italian.
1: Um, Yeah, that's what I was leaning into. Exactly. If it's Swiss German, then Thomas probably has it right, you know, because he's he is German after all. So,
2: Um, yeah, I I mean, look, I I, I feel like these stories are or a broken record at this point. Um, You know, I, I throw it in with you know, AI impacting PE, which, you know, I, I think is coincidentally our next story, um, (laughs) you know, yeah, AI, climate tech, uh, you know, and, and throw in, you know, sort of the growth of, um, you know, wealth management, um, and, you know, directing, uh, you know, sort of private markets efforts towards that, you know, that constituency. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it's another player obviously in a country, uh, very, very well known for its, uh, Wealth and management of that wealth, so you know, certainly makes sense for them to partner, you know, with a you know large asset manager like portfolio advisors, you know, who we of course know well and work with, and you know, they have a very diverse offering across you know private equity, you know, in traditional buyout, you know, growth venture, but also private credit, you know, private real estate, you know, to provide Vontabel, Maybe I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. (laughs) Um, You know, clients. You know, exposure to these asset classes. So, but come uh, on.
1: So this is this is a huge. Vontobel is two hundred fifty billion dollars in AUM. So it's it's a large wealth manager. And are we saying that in the year? This is how much of a broken record it is in the year twenty (laughs) twenty three that Vontobel did not have. A private markets offering for its two hundred and fifty billion dollars in assets. Like that, I mean, I think it should be a point of embarrassment more than a point of pride that you only are releasing this now. I would, I would secretly release this if I had no offering before this. So my hope is that maybe this is the next, (laughs) the next offering after all the stuff that they had helped their clients with before. But this is the first time they bring in house something like that. But if all two hundred fifty billion of that had not gone into private markets at all. I mean, they should have been on this a long while ago if they, if they were. So, um, but obviously good that they're catching up. Very yeah. good point. My, my my
2: guess is perhaps, you know, there's a subsector of Vantabelle clients who have always had access to to, right. to private markets. Um perhaps this is the you know, the the masses over at Vontabelle, which which are probably still quite well off who are, you know, getting sort of programmatic access, you know, for the for the first time. Um But again, you know, uh, who who knows? I mean, perhaps the wealth management industry, um, you know, across the pond, you know, does not move necessarily as quickly, you know, as it might in the United States with respect to these kinds of uh, of programmatic innovations. Um, But, you know, whether they're embarrassed or not, you know, hopefully their clients will start to benefit from access to this as well.
0: Yeah, this is the Swiss way, slow and steady and safe.
1: It has seemed to work. I mean, you know, they're going to get access to these to these investments and, these are the types of folks that really benefit from having sort of this index investing type of approach, right? They're just trying to get into this asset class and have someone who can construct a, a great index for them. Which it sounds like kind of like that's what they're doing. They might yeah. have some customization around it, but in general, they, they're going to kind of maybe create you know uh, separate managed accounts or uh, a customized fund to fund for each client um, that that wants it. Seems like a great product that uh, you know, frankly, every wealth manager should probably have something like this. So. If you're yeah. a wealth manager out there, you should probably, you know, catch up with the, if you're behind the, behind the Swiss wealth managers, you know, you, you, you've you got to be running <laughs> a little bit faster.
0: All right. Let's wrap up with the next theme in asset management.
1: The, yeah. I've the hinted at that a couple coming. of times here. He's a, he's already disparaged this topic a couple of times. So I don't even think we're going to get his comment on this AI <laughs> story that we're about to cover next. Well, AI I mean, is exactly is AI, right? I, I mean, I, I
2: just, I can't really even, Distinguish uh, between different applications anymore. I I mean, I think you know, you know, large language models are are, are not a new thing. You know, natural language processing is is not necessarily a new thing. Um, You know, the the capabilities of the technology have obviously improved dramatically. Um, So, I mean, look, I think some people are taking some very sober perspectives on this that I think makes sense. You know, I think when it comes to you know, flipping through you know mass
1: documents. Um, and, and, wow, and you're 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 caught on this. You know, Thomas hasn't even had a chance to read the read the headline here, and you're already commenting. <laughs> no, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Well, I what mean, is like, the headline, Thomas? What's the headline? What are we yeah, talking? Remind about here? us.
0: Basically, PE firms are they've been looking at kind of the impact of AI on their portfolio companies, and in doing so, they realized, hey, maybe we should think about what AI. Uh, can do for us or what impact it would have on our own business. And some firms uh, refuse to look at it. Some firms are just getting started looking at it. Uh, there are some firms out there that have already declared themselves sort of victorious over AI and as, as sort of you know AI kingpins. I love um,
1: that. That's like, that's like when Bush said, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah, that. exactly, that's exactly what it's like.
0: Know? Um yeah I mean, there's so many angles to this like you know, like Adam was starting to talk about you know there's whether you're just reviewing documents in an automated fashion or whether you're talking about cybersecurity there's you know or data access there's there's really a lot here um a lot of detail and yeah we, we can start anywhere but <laughs> maybe we just let Adam connect on his rant
1: Oh
2: my God! Well, I'm, I, you know, look, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite certain productivity will improve. Um, you know, incrementally. I mean, we have you know clients on the tap platform who you know already have have built their own proprietary software to you know sift through unstructured information and sort of pull out um, you know the diligence that they prioritize, and that does allow them to, in fact, review more deals. Um, does it allow them to review those deals more effectively? Does it make them better investors? I don't know. Um you know that that I think is is really TBD, but o- overall, I mean, will it will it allow you know transactional processes, diligence processes to speed up? you know, i I think most certainly, and I think the tech will improve such that you know diligence will improve and speed up as a process. Um, again, does it does it make us better negotiators, better deal makers? does it make you a better investor at the end of the day? I think the technology is, much too early. Um, and or the early application at least is not there in in my view. Um and you know, I think um, you know, I think there are some within the private equity industry who who certainly recognize that. I think the, you know, the press tends to sensationalize, you know, this coming AI revolution, uh, which is really just kind of an incremental improvement. I mean, we used Um, you know, software at all of my previous jobs to, um, you know, sift through large legal documents, as an example. I mean, companies like, you know, DebtWire, Covenant Review, etc., you know, companies that do help you read, you know, read long, you know, um, credit agreements, for example. Um, This is really just kind of an extension of that. and, And I think it's a welcome extension of that as well. But
1: let's not blow things out of proportion, I think, just yet. So if we break this down category by category, you're really talking about, you know, some of the due diligence stuff here. There's a couple other categories that we might want to look at. So another one that folks had mentioned was cold calling and, you know, cold emailing folks, which is just like the lowest value task that you can really like say that you want to automate. Like, is that really going to revolutionize PE that like you now you don't have to have your associates or something writing cold emails to uh, companies that you want to buy out? Like, Really? Like I, I don't think that's not where I view this as being. It, it's that's where it can be definitely incremental. Due diligence, incremental, right? Now, another place folks have talked about this is literally in the investment making process. You know, they were talking about in some of these articles. Uh, could you have AI sitting on your investment com, investment committee making a uh, taking a vote? And uh, interestingly, they had asked eighty fund managers. You know, and only one of them. They said at least one of them was pursuing. The potential of having you know AI involved in their investment decisions. So basically, that's out the window, right? The idea of having AI involved in investment decisions out the window, which is not a crazy idea in public markets. The most successful firms have been using AI for decades now to make literal second by second, millisecond by millisecond investment decisions. And so, it's not out of the question that you would have it do that. It's not going to happen though in private markets, obviously. And then all these other little things are incremental. So. I agree with Adam that, you know, the these things are uh, incrementally important, not revolutionary to in the industry. Uh, you know, mostly often what we're seeing is folks like BlackRock and Carlyle in their earnings reports and their earnings calls are mentioning the word AI because every time they say it, it boosts their, you know, uh, multiples by a half point each time. Um, and so, you know, we're getting a lot of hype around it, yeah. but obviously that'll wash out. And I, I think it's starting to wash out pretty quick here. I think people are starting to get pretty sane on AI pretty quickly. Yep. Um, that's at least how it feels in venture.
0: Totally agree. Let's conclude there. This has been Last Week in Private Markets. Bye-bye.